We're reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 to 9. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves, first of all, to the Lord, and then, by the will of God, also to us. So we urged Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, See that you also excel in this grace of giving. I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich." Thank you, Julia, for reading the word of the Lord to us this morning. Well, good morning. How are you doing? You're doing woohoo? Okay. <laughs> I want to do a quick poll, poll here at the beginning as I, I share this morning. Um, so this is the two questions I'm going to ask, or the question I'm going to ask. I want to ask how many of you... So I'll show you how, I'll tell you how this works. How many of you grew up in a family where they were always talking about money? And how many of you grew up in a family where they never talked about money? And so in order for this to be an accurate poll, I'll just make it like this. Let's say that over here is the always talked about money side. And over here is that they never talked about money side. So now you can calibrate this according to your family. Maybe it wasn't always talking about money, and maybe it wasn't never talking about money. And so, so I'm going to get you in a moment to either point this way if your family always talked about money, and if they never talked about money, point over here. But if it's somewhere in between where you say, yeah, my mom liked to talk about money, but my dad, you know. So you, you can make your own little gradient on where it's going to end up, okay? And then we're going to all vote at the same time. So just think about it. In the family you grew up in where you were a kid, did they always talk about money or never talk about money or somewhere in between, okay? And we're going to go one, two, three, and then I want you to point. That's all we're going to do, okay? One, two, three, go point. Oh, oh, I got some nevers. Got some, some, yeah, not too many are saying always. Some are saying quite often, but okay, good, good. Did you look around? Did you stare? Oh my, could they come from? (laughs) Oh, here's another one. Maybe I'll do a quick poll. How many of you are suspicious that some churches are all about money? Oh, I'm not really asking for a show of hands. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about that. Some churches talk about money a lot. And here at Hillcrest, I think we've actually talked about money very little. And uh, the, uh, the reason I say we talk about very little is I think we talk about it a lot less than Jesus talked about it. And we're trying to be followers of Jesus. We're trying to follow his life example. And he talked about it quite a bit. Uh, he's about 40 parables uh, I think about 15 of those are about money out of 40 of the, you know, those stories that he created to help share a spiritual truth. And so I don't think we talk about money as much as Jesus did. I, I tried to go back in my mind about uh, sort of the money talks. So I've, been, so I've been on staff here at Hillcrest Church for 20 years. So I have 20 years of history, and I've had a role through those 20 years in designing pretty much all the teaching that we do. I've had some part to play, even when I was assisting Pastor Alan Buchanan and Pastor Dave Wicks. Um, so in 20 years on staff, I can only recall one sermon series. That would be a number of weeks of teaching on money. It was a three-week series, and I'm guessing it was about 15 years ago. Alan spoke twice in that series. I spoke once. 
so I'm, this is my tally. I'm tallying up. Uh, then uh, I, I spoke about money again in 2008 uh, when I came back from Burkina Faso. I, I just had to speak about materialism coming back from the second poorest country in the world. Um, I've spoken twice in the last few years on stewardship and, and, and money. Um, so that gets me to four. And then last week, I was talking about seeking the kingdom first before the love of money, or not the love, or getting rid of the love of money. So that's five. And then this week is is six. And I, this is not the only church I've pastored in. I spent eight years in a church in Nippon. So six sermons in 28 years is how many times I've done a message just specifically on Monday. Money. And now if you're visiting here or this is your first time here, you're like, oh man, rats, what, what dumb luck. I ended up in church on the week when they're talking about money. Oh man, why couldn't I have come any of those other 28 years worth? <laughs> Anyhow, yeah. You know, I want to tell you why I probably haven't spoken about money very much. It's because I think people are generally suspicious that churches are all about money. I think it's out there. I don't think everyone thinks that, but I think there's a number of people who do think that. And I didn't want to confirm that suspicion for people. I didn't want people to, to come to believe that that's what church was about. That's not what church is about in my experience. And I've been, I, I grew up going to church when I was a kid, so I've had a long life of going to church, and I've, I've rarely had the impression that what we were doing was really about money. So I don't want to feed in. I don't want to give that impression. And especially, you know, you have someone, they bring a friend to church, and they're like, oh, no, the pastor's talking about money. So we've talked about money very little over the last 20 years as a church. But I think we've actually gone too far to the other way. Because Jesus, when he was teaching people to follow him, teaching people to be his disciples, and that's what he called his followers, he, he taught them a lot about money. He talked a lot about money and, and its place in our lives. And so uh, I had a last time, two times when I talked about money uh, in the last couple of years, not last week, I apologized because I, I said what I've practiced is a form of malpractice in that I've not talked about things that Jesus has talked about. And so we're going to look at some of the things Jesus says about money here today and what his followers in the New Testament said as well. So we're in a bit of a, we're in a series called Launching the Next Legacy. Our church is in its hundredth year of proclaiming Jesus in Moose Jaw. 1923 to, I think it's in May, when our church was started, May 1923. So May 2023 will be the end of 100 years of history as a church. And we recognize that as a church, we have received a godly legacy from those who've gone before us. And we long to leave a godly legacy for those who come after us. And the series that we're in right now, launching the next legacy is all about asking what kind of legacy should a Christian leave? And what kind of legacy should um, followers of Jesus uh, leave as they come together as a church? What kind of legacy, legacy should a church leave? Pastor Dave Wicks wrote in one of his emails recently that the real legacy is faith, not finances. We often think of a legacy. We often think it's, it's finances. You're living an inheritance or you're giving to the, um, you know, to the hospital or something like that. To, that's, that's a legacy. And that can be a legacy too. But the real legacy of value is faith. Is what are, you in, what are you instilling in the next generation? What are you passing on that will continue to um, do good in their lives? So I'm glad for Dave's the real legacy is faith, not finances statement because I personally don't know if I'm very good at it as a fundraiser. But I don't know if I'm really, you know, some people have the calling to be a fundraiser, and it's a, it's a good thing. It's a good thing that people have that ability and that drive. But me, I think I'm called to be a disciple maker. And so I, I'm okay with the real legacy is faith and not finances. Because I, I think what we often forget about is that the main thing Jesus wants from us it's not our money. He wants our affections. But as followers of Jesus, we still have to talk about money because money reveals our affections. If you want to know what someone values, you can get a pretty good idea from looking at their calendar and their bank account. Where do they spend their time? And where do they spend their money? And that's probably a good indication of what they value. So last week I talked about a kingdom-first legacy. I'll just recap quickly. I'm talking about seeking first the kingdom of God and seeing Jesus' uh, kingly reign in our own lives. In, 
is simply to embrace Jesus as king and then to serve him as king in our lives. So I introduced three thoughts that I hope would continue to soak into us week after week after week. And these were the three big kingdom reveal thoughts that I had last week. The Bible teaches that as king, Jesus is the owner and we are the managers of the resources he entrusts us with. So everything we are and everything we have belongs to God. Here's the second kingdom reveal. Seeking the kingdom isn't about having no treasure. It's about having the greatest treasure. Jesus' kingly reign in our lives is a treasure worth giving everything else up for. And finally, giving is the way to break the chains of materialism and expand Jesus' kingdom. See, Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And it's an interesting thought that if you want your heart to expand for something, send some treasure towards it. Give towards it. Like, for example, if you really want to... Uh, Focus on the Coca-Cola company. Just buy stock. And it'll happen. Why? Because you put your treasure there. You put some, tre- some treasure there, right? And you'll, you'll suddenly be very interested in what they're doing. That stuff you didn't care about before. And it's the same with anything. Where our treasure is, there your heart will be also. So much of, much of the world around us, I'm not saying everyone, I'm just saying lots of people, Operate on principles of getting and keeping and controlling, competing against each other for pieces of the pie, gathering, grasping, and getting. But as followers of Jesus, if we follow that pattern that exists, we'll miss the adventure that God wants to lead us on. We'll experience discontent fueled by materialism and we'll be spending so much that we'll end up in debt. We'll experience anxiety and worry, and that'll have us hoarding money. You know, when I was uh, just freshly married, living in Nippon, there's a bunch of young couples. We were all freshly married, and we all did the same test. There was a test you could take, and it was to assess your, your patterns with money. And the outcomes of the test would give you a number, and it would give you a name. So you could say, well, I'm a 12 on the... This scale. Well, the two scales were you were either a spender or a hoarder. Now, can you see the danger in telling a bunch of young married couples a name that they can use against their spouse? I mean, people fight about money. I mean, so many marriages have problems with money. I mean, I don't know of any marriage probably that doesn't have trouble about money because we disagree. And, and so that was crazy. Like in our group of friends, it was just sort of like, yeah, well, he's like a level 12 hoarder. Oh, yeah. Well, you're a level 30 spender. You know, it was like, you know, it was crazy. And so this was kind of some of the talk. And I remember as we were looking at this instrument back and forth, and the idea was to become balanced, not sort of tilted too far to one way or the other way. But I remember just thinking, you know what's missing with this is, it's, what's missing is the thing that addresses spending and hoarding. The Bible's teaching on generosity. See, let me read you a verse. 1 Corinthians 2.12 says, What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. So there's, God, is free, God has freely given us. We're meant to understand that and not just flow along with the pattern of whatever the world is, but to actually go upstream. To live differently. And it comes from understanding what God has really given us. Matthew 10, 7 to 8 says, Jesus was sending out his 12 disciples and he said to them, As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. And then he says all sorts of different things. But at the end he says, Freely you have received. Freely give. Here's the pattern. We have received from God. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you've come to that moment of faith where you said, yeah, God, I belong to you. I'm yours. Lead me. Guide me. Forgive me. Freely you have received. See, God offers that as a free gift. He offers his, his, his acceptance. His, he offers you a place in his family. He offers it freely. And then he tells us, respond to this by freely giving. 
freely you've received, freely give. Could it be that we're made to experience more? Could it be that we're made to experience a more deeply satisfying experience of God's grace? Maybe even if you are a follower of Jesus, and, and I know not everyone in the room necessarily is or isn't, but if you are a follower of Jesus, maybe there's more. In fact, I would pretty much say there is more. A more deeply satisfying experience of God's grace. That's what freely receiving is, grace. It's unmerited gift. God gives us himself. He gives us his forgiveness, his leadership in our lives. And he gives it freely. And then expects us to walk in that free giving attitude as well. So could it be that we're made to experience a more deeply satisfying experience of God's grace? And could it be that we're then empowered to experience a doubly satisfying experience of extending grace to others? This week we're talking about a legacy of generosity. And um, just talking about what God wants to do in our lives and how he wants us to live. And before we jump all the way into it, uh, I'm going to just invite you to watch this video. It talks about uh, a couple from our church and their experience in growing in generosity. Hi, I'm Sheldon. And I'm Karen. And we've been asked to talk about the joy of a generous life. Um, we were both raised in homes where it was normal to uh, give, both through tithing and through offerings, and to give with a cheerful heart, because God loves a cheerful giver. And we have learned through the course of our life that any time we put our faith into action, God takes us on an exciting adventure. <laughs> so what do we believe about God? What's the faith that we want to put into action? We believe that God is the creator and sustainer of everything. We believe that he owns it all. <laughs> Even what is mine is actually just his. We believe that his storehouses of provision are limitless. We believe that he loves us and says he will care for us and take care of us. We believe he's a miracle working God and that his plans are to partner with us to provide for others. We believe that as Proverbs 22, 9 says, generous people will be blessed. And we believe that it's better to give than to receive. And there's no more satisfying or exciting way to live. Mm -hmm. And a couple of the stories from the Bible that come to mind when we think about this and how we've been challenged over the years is the story of the widow that fed Elijah. And she only had enough flour and oil to feed herself and her son for one last meal. And Elijah had actually asked her to feed him first and that God would provide the rest. And in obedience, she sacrificed and she gave all that she had to Elijah. And sure enough, God provided a miracle every morning for, until the end of the famine, she was able to wake up and have enough oil and um, flour to feed herself and her son. And how exciting that must have been to live in faith like that. And also the, the feeding of the 5,000 where this young boy was obedient and gave what he had of the fish and the five loaves to Jesus and then watch him perform a miracle to provide for everyone there. And how exciting that must have been for that boy as well as everyone that participated in that today. So those are some biblical stories, but personal stories. Um, the church that we went to when we were first married and young, uh, we talked about money all the time, which was kind of new for me, and it made me a little uncomfortable. But what it did was it provided me an opportunity to learn about giving. Every week it seemed they would present a new project or a need, someone in the church needed help, or could we give to this ministry or that ministry? And we were often challenged to give big, not just little, but, and to give sacrificially. And so we learned how to pray and listen to the Lord. Are you asking us to give to this? And then, how much, Lord? And then we would um, come together and say, well, what do you think? What do you think? We would come into agreement, and then with joy, because we knew we were obeying God, we would give. Um, and God always provided a, for us when we gave sacrificially. Mm -hmm. It's always been a great joy to give. Yeah, so one of the personal stories that we have is in, um, uh, I was looking for an opportunity to make some extra money when, when we still lived in Calgary and had the opportunity to buy a vehicle from an auction and then hopefully sell it for a profit. And at the same time, we had a single mom who was new to the faith um, in our small group who I knew she needed some financial help. And so we considered giving some of that money to her. And then as we prayed about it, I actually felt challenged to give a first fruits offering and just give everything that I would make on that to her. And so sure enough, the vehicle sold right away for full asking price and I was able to give all of that money to her. Um, and that just 
that was amazing. And then also communicate to her that this was from the Lord. This is how the Lord provided for you to get this. And obviously we learned that she had been praying for provision in her own life and God was faithful. So how exciting that was. It was super fun. Another story about sacrificially giving is um, I needed a dental procedure. And back when Sheldon and I were first married, we didn't have much money. We didn't have any dental insurance. I wasn't working. I was staying home with Levi and Sheldon didn't have insurance through his job. So we had saved and saved to finally have enough money to get this uh, dental thing done. And sure enough, a need came up and the leadership of the church were asking people to give and I felt strongly that the Lord was telling us to give what we had already saved and we talked about it. We both agreed that that's what the Lord wanted us to do and so that we could just trust him in that. Mm -hmm. So we prayed and we did it and then we didn't know what would happen and here was the week of the dentist appointment and I didn't know what would happen and I received in the mail a check from my dentist for the exact amount, almost down to the penny that I would need to come in for the dentist appointment have the procedure done and they gave a reason why but we knew no. that it was just the Lord providing and taking care of us. No. So that's a couple stories from us, and uh, we're just excited to see those of you who have maybe not had an opportunity to just really prayerfully consider and listen to the opportunities that God is presenting to you, to uh, take that step of faith and be obedient in what God is asking you to do and just see how He will provide. It's very exciting. It will be an adventure. Yeah. All right, how encouraging is that? You know, it's one thing to believe that everything we have belongs to God, but it's another thing when everything we have belongs to God sinks down into our hearts where we feel it and we grasp it. And that's when generosity moves from an obligation to an opportunity, from a duty to a delight, from a have-to to a get-to, and from rules we keep to an adventure that we share, an adventure with God. And it sounds a lot like Karen and Sheldon were have experienced some of those adventures with God. See, God has called us to live a life of generosity that's fueled by his generosity in giving us his son. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave. How is, how is love expressed? It's, it's expressed by giving. It's expressed by giving, and that's how God expressed it. And that's how we, we follow his example. We, we're called to follow his example. God so loved God so loved. Do you know that? God so loved you, that you are so loved by God. I mean, if that, I, I, even just that truth, if that could sink so deeply into our hearts, if that could just become our reality where we go, man, I, uh, life is difficult. It sucks sometimes, but I am so loved by God. And that becomes a strength. That becomes a, a, something that uh, brings life to us. That we are loved by God. God so loved the world. He so loved you that he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes on him would not perish but have everlasting life. He gave. He loved. So he gave. You know, there's a verse. We've, I've shared it. I'll probably share it every week of this series. God loves a cheerful giver is the tagline. You know, if you allow him, God will take you through every stage of growth in giving that he wants to take you through to make that a reality. Now you might say, like, you know, a cheerful giver? For me to give with joy, for me to give with excitement, for me to give freely? And it just, it just flows and it's not, I'm not hoarding or scared or anxious. Or, I don't know if I could ever see myself getting there. Well, God is there willing to walk with you to help you take steps to grow in the grace of giving. So I'm going to spend my time this morning just talking about what the, some of the things the Bible tells us about giving and generosity. And uh, I'm going to start with something out of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, they were taught to give uh, as a nation. They were taught to give a tithe. Karen Sheldon mentioned that word. What's a tithe? It's a 10% is what it is. 10% of their crops. So they've taken a crop, they bring 10%. There is a few different tithes in the Old Testament, actually. There's that one basic one. You bring, come and bring your, your crops uh, and to the Lord, basically. There was an, another one, another 10%, where it was, it was sort of to go to a feast. You'd go to a feast, you bring 10% of your crops, and then that would be used to feed your family and to feed other people who are with you celebrating. So it had a spillover effect, that one. 
And um, then there was a, a tithe for the poor that happened every three years. Every three years, the Israelites were to set aside a tenth of their crops. Um, so it's not really a tenth, I guess, because it's maybe like 3.3% over three years, right? You know what I mean? But uh, it was a tenth every three years. So there's sort of three tithes in the Old Testament. But this, this concept of the tithe was a command for the Israelite people to follow. And I'm going to just read to you about a time where they weren't obeying this command and how what God uh, had said to them about it. He said, ever since the time of your ancestors, this is Malachi 3.7, ever since the time of your ancestors, you've turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. So these are decrees, commands. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God, yet you rob me? But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. And they weren't doing what God commanded. That was the basic gist. And God had told the Israelites, if you, do what I, if you do what I command, I'll bless you. And if you don't do what I command, well, it won't go well for you. So br- your whole nation are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land. So, pretty interesting stuff. God was really serious about this. He was saying, this is what I want you to do. You're my, you're my special. The Israelites were sort of like chosen as a special people to show the world what God was like. In God's interactions with them, they would see what God was like. But he had guidelines and directions for them, and they were totally disregarding them. The bringing the tithe into the storehouse provided for many things. But it did provide uh, for food for those who didn't have food. And, it, and it, it was God's command, and they would totally disregard it. And so God uh, accuses them of robbing them, but then he turns it around and he says, just test me in this. Test me. Like, test me on the blessing side of things. Like, if you give like this, will I not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing there'll be not room enough to store it? Now, some of you guys grew up, this is something you knew about growing up. Um, my parents, when I was young, like as soon as they gave me money, they taught me this principle. Um, the prin- this is how they taught me. They laid out, you know, 10 dimes. I can't believe it was dimes. Uh, now I'm laying out $10 for my kids, but anyhow, inflation. Anyhow, they would lay out 10 dimes, and then they'd say, uh, okay, this is your allowance. And uh, they'd say, the first dime belongs to God. That's how they taught me. So, I mean, it's really simple. I mean, a child can understand and do As long as you can count to 10, you can do it, right? So, uh, that was the idea, was that the, the, the first dime belongs to God. That's how you tithe. And so, then I would hold on to that dime and, and uh, put it in the offering plate on Sunday. Or at least that was what was supposed to happen. Most of the time, well, not early on, I didn't. I didn't do that. Because I thought, 90 cents at the candy store or... 100 cents at the candy store. Which do I want? Well, I wanted that extra dime. And so I fought with God over that dime for a long time. I did. So I knew there's this concept. It's like, you know, is 90 cents and God's blessing on my life better than 100 cents and my control over my money? I wrestled with that, and wrestled with that, and wrestled with that. And lots of offering plates went by in church, and my dime didn't go in. But over the wrestling period, I, come to, I came to a place eventually of saying, God, I'm going to trust you that 90 cents and your blessing is worth more. So that was the simple understanding I had as a kid. And you know what? I am so glad my parents taught me that. I've actually practiced that ever since I was a kid. Like, I, I think I, my, my wrestling with God over that 10% of my income ended before I was 11 years old, I'm sure. 
And I've just practiced it the rest of my life. Now, I've never missed that 10% because I've never, ever had it. It's always been, oh, yeah, that first 10 belongs to God. The first 10% belongs to God. So I've experienced the blessing of this because, I mean, I want to give. I want to be generous. I, but naturally, I'm not. But here was a practice that was very easy for me to put, implement and put into place. So some quick comments about tithing. It, it was a blessing to me because it put me into that wrestling with God's phase. Like, is he really... The one who's in charge of my life, or is it me? And it was this great opportunity, even as a child, to have that wrestle with God over that. Again, again it was a simple plan. Any ch- a child who can count to ten can do this. I'm doing this with my nine-year-old. Again, it's ten loonies now. I can't believe how expensive it is. And uh, I'm going to start soon with my five-year-old daughter. It was an act of faith for me, again, that 90% and his blessing would better be, than be better than 100% at my control. And that was that verse, test me in this, test me in this. Are you going to have an awful life if you do this, or are you going to have a great life? It was a way to show God and myself that I trust God to look after me. It was a way to signify his lordship over me and, that, and all the money I'm given. It wasn't just that, the, like the first dime belongs to God. That was a nice little saying that worked for me. But the reality is I've come to realize it all belongs to God. And this was a way I could express that. It was a way to team together to provide steady, dependable support for our local church in our little town. The missionaries we supported all over the world and the efforts to advance Christ's kingdom together. I was part of it. As a kid, with one dime, I was part of it. I was on the team, the giving team of the Surus Gospel Chapel. It was an acceptable way to test God's ability to bless. God said that it's okay to test him in this. Okay, so that was good. And it was a way of giving that is easy to automate. This is really important for busy adults who aren't good with details. That's me. Uh, I don't do well with too many details and too many things I have to remember. So I try to make all my financial payments automatic if I can. Uh, I have, right now, I, I just started, I have one payment that has no bill, and it has no reminders. I have a, such a hard time remembering it. It's, this is just the, not, this isn't my, I'm not talking about giving or any, at the church. I'm talking about, I have this one bill, and I cannot, and I'm like, I want them all to be automatic. When I joined the church here 20 years ago, I found out you could do an automatic withdrawal. That's what I started, and I never looked back. As my income's grown, I've changed the amount, but I have never, it just works for me. To have something that's automatic. I like having my values and my priorities automatic. Because I don't want to miss them. And so I, if my giving to God wasn't automated, I think I would forget sometimes. So I strongly rec- recommend tithing as a way to, to begin to give. But I don't, I don't command it. I don't go back to that, those verses in Malachi and tell people they're robbing God. There's some reasons for that. See, this is a strong Old Testament command, what God's command for Israel. But the New Testament is pretty quiet on it. And there's some debate amongst Christians on whether it's a New Testament obligation. See, there's no mention of tithing after the Gospels. Jesus is is sort of the last one to mention tithing about how it was right for the Pharisees to tithe on um, not just their crops, but on their uh, um, spices, basically. So they were tithing on everything. He said that was right, right? But also criticized them because they neglected uh, much more important things than that. But that was good. But that's the last time it's mentioned. It's neither commanded in the New Testament after Jesus' death nor rescinded. So that gets a little puzzling for us. We're saying, so it's just still the same program. Keep tithing or maybe not. You know, so there's some debate among Christians whether this is the starting place for giving. Randy Alcorn, in his book, The Treasure Principle, he, he writes it this way. He says, um, what's, the, what's the expectation for people in the New Testament or people after Jesus' death? Does God expect his new covenant children to give less or more than those in the Old Testament? It's a good question. So I would say, I recommend tithing to you. You say, well, I don't know if it's a New Testament command. It's a blessing. 
That's what it was in my life. It just continues to be in my life. My, I just recommend it because it's good for you. I'm so thankful my parents got me started doing that when I was young, when it was dimes and not thousands of dollars. That would be way harder. So does God, so if, if you're tithing, it's good. You've got a good floor under you. But I don't think tithing is meant to be the ceiling. I don't think tithing is meant to be all. I think we're supposed to grow in giving. Back to the, the passage that we read, it says, it encourages the Corinthian church to excel in the grace of giving. Just like you excel in everything else. They already showed so many good things in their lives. But excel in the grace of giving. So I think we're meant to grow in this over time. So, quickly, last thing I'll maybe say about tithing really quickly is, if you find some other methodology or way of thinking of it that enables you to give radically generously in your life and to God's kingdom as a, as a believer, go for it. I have no problem with that. But if you don't have any, other, any idea that really would work as good as tithing, I'd recommend tithing. So that's the floor. That's the floor. So what are the beneficiaries of giving? Let me give you four. Number one, giving blesses the giver. It blesses the giver. Jesus said, and they were quoting it in this video, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Now, receiving is pretty nice. Christmas is coming, right? Receiving is pretty nice. But there is something pretty awesome about giving. There's something awesome about giving. And Jesus said, it's, it's the more awesome of the two. Um, Philippians 4.17 says, he says, it's not that I desire your gifts, Paul's talking to this church. It's not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. See, I'm not, because he was working out to give an offering and stuff like that. He's saying, you know what? It's not about the money coming this way. It's about what happens for you when you give. See, generosity is not something that uh, we want from somebody. It's something that we want for people. So, Generosity, it brings spiritual blessings now in our lives. We're blessed to give. There's spiritual blessing. We're trusting God in that. We're saying, God, as I give, we trust that you are, you are blessing me in return. Not, not necessarily like some people would say, oh, it's just a math equation. You give this, and then God will give you this amount back or something like that. I don't really go for that. I think those spiritual blessing always comes with giving, the right kind of giving. And it often, I think there is promises in the scripture that talk about material blessing now. We have to be careful with them. Um, let me read you 2 Corinthians 9, 6 to 8. It says, remember this, whoever sows, so it's like talking about farming, whoever plants seed sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. So what is, what is the way that God uh, says he will bless us abundantly? He says he's able to bless you abundantly in all things at all times, having all that you need. Okay, so not all that you want, but God is interested in supplying your needs. That's, that's his interest. And you will abound in every good work. So God, when we give, God is talking about replenishing our needs and giving us enough so we can abound in every good work. Now, so you got to understand, what you think are your needs might not be what God thinks are your needs. So you have to be under, understanding of that. You say, man, I need that, I need that. And God will say, well, you don't need those things. But I'll make sure your real needs are met. Seems like that's what he's indicating here. And we'll have enough to abound in every good work. God has some good stuff for you to do. Plan for that in advance for your life. Things that, you know, there's hands only you're going to hold. There's people only you are going to touch. There's, there's pe people's lives only you're going to impact in certain specific ways. And he's saying, I'm going to give you everything you need to abound in those good works. Whatever you need to, to be able to Bless in, in those people in that way. So that's a pretty powerful promise. And you know, there's eternal blessings in, in, in heaven when tied to our giving as well. 
So it really blesses the giver. Let me give you two more verses. Proverbs 11.25, a generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. And here's the last one. Jesus is speaking. Luke 6, 37 to 38. He's talking about basically what you do coming back to you. He said, don't judge or you will be judged. Do not condemn or you will be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So God's saying, in the way he set up the world, there's some sort of uh, reciprocal uh, dynamic going on. But how you, what you are sowing, what you are planting in the world, or in the kingdom of God, it'll come back to you. And some of these things are things you don't want coming back to you, and some of these things are things you do want coming back to you. So it blesses the giver. The second thing it does is it blesses the church with love and unity. 2 Corinthians 9, 12 to 14. So the context of what we read at the very beginning, what Julia read us, was they're taking up this offering for a church in Jerusalem. And they're talking to this church in Corinth. And they're saying, you know, um, this is what will happen when you, when you give. It says, this service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but it's also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you've proved yourself, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ. And for your generosity in sharing with him and everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. He says their hearts will go out to you. So as you give, he's saying their hearts are going to be warmed with love and there's going to be greater unity because of the giving that happens within, uh, within uh, Christians giving to, to Christians here. So, that's one thing. It blesses the church with love and unity. It blesses the giver, it blesses the church with love and unity, and the world takes note. That line in there. Because of the service by which you prove yourself, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ, for your generosity in sharing with them and everyone else. So they were going to give this offering to the church in Jerusalem to help them in a, in a really hard time. And it was sort of implied there that it wouldn't just bless people who were followers of Jesus in Jerusalem. It would bless other people who weren't. And that's always how it's meant to work. Uh, God has designed for us to be people for others as, follower, as his followers. And so... Uh, when he blesses our life, it's meant to overflow in being able to bless others. Not just other people who are Christians, but those who uh, maybe haven't, or haven't made that decision to follow Jesus. So the world takes note of that. It's interesting, the world takes note of the fact that they will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ. Obedience that accompanies a confession of the gospel of Christ. So you say, well, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer. Well, what does that mean? Does it mean anything different than the -the run-of-the-mill average life? In this case, people who are not followers of Jesus will say, oh, it does mean something different. It actually means something remarkably different. See, what had happened was Paul's writing this letter to the Corinthians and he's talking to them about another church, the Macedonians. We've got Jerusalem, that's where the offering's going. The Corinthians, that's where they're going to get an offering from. But the Macedonians have already given. And it says that they gave out of their poverty. It says two things came together. Their desperate poverty and their overflowing joy. And that sprung up into rich generosity. You say, that's a funny combination. Giving out of your poverty? Well, that's remarkable. That doesn't usually happen. That's not run-of-the-mill life. And that's why people could say, this kind of obedience 
It must spring from somewhere. It must come from somewhere. This kind of radical generosity must come from somewhere. Where does it come from? When people who are poor give sacrificially in joy, that must be... So he's saying they will link that obedience. When that money comes to Jerusalem and it begins to feed the, the, the church in Jerusalem and they begin to feed their neighbors and it begins to be a blessing in the whole community, they will figure out it's connected to something because it doesn't make sense. Where did this come from? Macedonia. Aren't they poor too? Yeah, desperately. Then what's going on? They are so happy because of what God's done in their life. They're so full of joy. So the world take notes, takes note, and God gets the glory. God gets the glory. Not us, but God. So how do we excel in this grace of giving? That's the charge in 2 Corinthians 8, 7. Is, is see that you excel. You excel in so many things. See that you excel in the grace of giving. So I want to give you as much as I can in this short amount of time on just what the New Testament says about about the, excelling in the grace of giving. The first thing is just give yourself to the Lord. That's what the Macedonians had done. It says they gave themselves to the Lord and then to us. It's actually similar to the greatest commandment. The greatest commandment, Jesus, Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So he's saying, here's this one-two step. It's you love God, and out of that love relationship with God, where you're loving God, but I'm telling you, he's loving you, there's overflow. And you begin to love your neighbor. So that's what happened. They gave themselves to the Lord. And then they gave themselves to bless the Jerusalem church. So give yourself to the Lord. That's the first thing. Uh, in, in giving is just give yourself. Not about your money at that point. Just give yourself to the Lord and love him. The second one is look at the example of people who excel in the grace of giving. That's what Paul was saying to this church. He's saying, look at the Macedonians. Corinthians, look at the Macedonians. You know, there's something contagious about generosity. Like when you uh, hear a story of somebody giving in a sort of radical way, that's contagious. Don't you sort of want go, oh, wow, that's amazing. I, I, you know, what would that be like to give like that? What would it be like to, 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 to you know, have that kind of adventure? So he was saying, he was using the Macedonians to stir up the Corinthians to give. But you know what? It was the Corinthians who started the ball rolling. And he tells them that. He said... You were the first ones willing to give. The Corinthians had indicated early on, they said, Jerusalem, they're in trouble, they're in famine, they're, they're suffering, we're going to help. And so Paul took that message to the Macedonians, and the Macedonians were like, the Corinthians are going to help, let us help too. It says they, they begged them to help. Let us help. Well, you guys are poor. Please, let us help. But you guys are in desperate situation. Let us give. We want to give to this too. So it was like this culture of generosity is springing up. Here you've got these churches that are inspiring one another to give. It's, you know what's neat? You get a few people who've got a few giving stories together, it's really exciting. You know, like Karen Sheldon shared a couple stories like that. It's like you get the stories and you say, yeah, yeah, there's this one time we had nothing and we knew someone else who had nothing and we found a way to give something and we just trusted God with everything and it was amazing. That's what it's meant to be like in the church. That's what it's meant to be like in the kingdom of God. Look at the example of people who excel in the grace of giving and, get, and let it get contagious. And keep looking at God's example. This one's key. This is foundational, probably the most important thing I can say to you today. Look at the example of God's gracious giving. We already said, God so loved, so he gave, from John 3.16. How about this one, Hebrews 12.2. It says, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. This is your life, running your life like it's a race. Fixing our eyes on Jesus 
the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So Jesus persevered, went, experienced the agony of the cross, but he had a joy in him. He looked at the, the, the shame of the cross, of, of all that it would be. I mean, the crosses were made by the Roman soldiers to humiliate, to shame, strip them naked, and then nail them publicly to a cross where they would die a slow, agonizing death. It was about total and utter humiliation. And so he scorned the shame of the cross. I mean, he, he, he got right in the face of it, basically, because there was a joy inside of him. And you know what? You were part of that joy. He saw you when he faced the cross. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. So it's the same for us. We're, we're meant to be mirrors of Jesus. We're meant to be small mirrors of the generosity of our king. Living life with a joy. Living life in the kingdom. So generosity for the Christian is not so much a virtuous act on our own part, but it's a response to a great virtuous act. What God did for us through Jesus. So it's really a response of gratitude to God who was generous with us first. Giving doesn't come from an abundance of money, but it comes from an abundance of joy. God blesses us so we can bless others. Here's a question I often ask. Do you see yourself mainly as a blessed person or mainly as a victim? A blessed person says this, I've been given more than I deserve. The thought pattern in being a victim is, I've received less than I deserve. Or I've been treated more badly than I deserve. And I think you can have both those dynamics in your life, but one of them is going to be the headline over your life. And for Christians, we keep coming back to the, the biggest headline over our life is what Jesus has done for us. We look back at the generosity of our God and we say, he gave us Jesus. He gave us his forgiveness. He's given us our, his leadership in our lives. He's given us a, a, a spiritual family to belong to. He's given us a home in heaven. He's given us all these things. And if he gives us all those things, I mean, why wouldn't we just trust him that he's got it? He's got it figured out for all the things that we need. So if you're struggling with gratitude, if you're struggling with contentment, if you're struggling to be generous, look deeply into what Jesus has done for you. And that way we become small mirrors of the generosity of our king. We're starting to reflect. We're starting to imitate. We're, trying, we're looking to his example, and then we're, we're walking that out in the world. That's what life in the kingdom is about. We look at our king. We look at what he does, and we walk, we, we walk it out as well. Here's another pointer. Live simply to free up your life to give. I have a cousin. He's a lawyer for the government in Regina. I think he makes an okay wage. He has seven children, so I think it all goes to his family. But anyhow, he said this to me a few years ago. He says, my goal in life is to live frugally so that I can live generously. I thought, ah, I love it. I love it. You live simply in your own needs so that you can give generously to others. And so we practice looking at our own lives and determining what we really need to, to live on. You know, the interesting thing, if God is the owner and we are the manager, that's what we talked about last week. If, if you think about that is that is God lets us set our own salaries. He lets us set what we, we live on. Now, I mean, you're saying, well, I'd like to live on a million dollars. Well, I mean, within the salary you, <laughs> you already received, right? How much of that do I need to live on? I mean, there's stuff you got to do. You got you to feed your, your family. You got to house them. You got to provide transportation and um, stuff like that. There's basics you just take care of. But how much can I live on? And then how much can I love with? How much can I invest with? How much can I invest in God's kingdom with? 
After the basics are covered, we should be looking to invest in God's kingdom. Hebrews 13.5 talks about this simplicity. Keep your lives free from the love of money. Like the love of money has us chasing after things to satisfy us. Uh, if only I had that, I'd be okay. And, and it says, so keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Again, it's leaning back on who God is for us so we can free up our lives to give. So I'm, I'm going to just go through some real practical ones. This is going to be lightning round. Here we go. And we're going to finish quickly. Judah, I think I left a book on the bench. Is there a book there? A little tiny book? Do you want to bring that up to me? That would be great. Here we go. This is just New Testament stuff. So if you want to know what the New Testament says about giving, here's basically stuff you can find in the New Testament. Every follower of Jesus should give. 1 Corinthians 6.2 says this. On the first day of each week, do, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. So everyone should give. And um, I'll just leave that there. Let's go to number two. Give your first and your best to God. So in the Old Testament and throughout the Bible, there's sort of this principle of the first fruits. You know, I said the first dime belongs to God. I found out if I decide to give God the last dime, that dime isn't there when it's time to give. That's just been my experience in life. So Matthew 6.33 says, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. It doesn't say seek last or seek second. It says seek first. You know, there's a money man, uh, financial advisors will say, pay yourself first. Have you heard that? Pay yourself first. That's the way to, you know, take money and set it aside. You won't even miss it. I use that same principle with giving to God. I don't even miss it, with, at least with tithing. But I don't say pay myself first. I say, well, no, the first part belongs to God. I'll pay myself second if I'm saving for retirement or something like that. But I won't do it first because I don't think that that's the most important thing. So give God the first and your best. Proverbs 3.9, honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Number three, give regularly and systematically. So 1 Corinthians 16.2 again, he says, he talks about the first day of every week. Each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income Oh, on the first day of every week. So there was a system. And Paul had taught this to the Corinthians. He taught this to the Galatians. It was things he was teaching pretty much everywhere of how to to do it. So every, you know, give as regularly as you get paid. I think that's probably a good rule of thumb. Here's number four. Give proportionately. This means giving at the level which God has blessed you materially. Now, generosity is not just a luxury for the rich. It is the privilege of the poor as well. The Macedonians didn't come up with every reason why they couldn't give. They came up with every reason why they could give, and then they begged to give. But at the same time, there was a level, even with what Paul said to the, the Corinthians, and even what we just read, that it's in keeping with your income. You know, so when you give, it's not like you can't do the math, or that you don't do the math, or you don't think about those things. When my wife and I were thinking about giving towards our capital campaign, there was prayer involved, there was Bible involved, there was math involved, there was what about this bill involved, there was what about that upcoming expense. Those are all part of the conversation. It's all part of it. But give proportionately. Give at the level which God has blessed you materially. So God may have blessed you uh, incredibly. Well, give at that level. Don't settle for less. And, God, and you might be in a very dire situation. You might be in debt. You might be struggling financially right now. And this whole talk is making you uneasy or sad. I'm sorry about that. Give where you're at. Give where you're at. But not, don't give nothing. Don't give nothing. Jesus tells a story about, or no, Jesus tells a story. Jesus witnesses. He's in the temple and people are giving and giving and giving. And people are dropping big bags of money into this, you know, place where they can give. And this widow comes along, and she has two little coins that are like pennies, basically, and she drops them in. And Jesus stops his disciples, and he says, see that? Don't miss that. You saw all the guys with the big bags? I'm telling you the truth. She has given more than anyone else today. Why? Because she, it, proportionately, she had given more. Hers was the greatest sacrifice. See, the, the generosity is not measured by the size of the gift. It's really measured by the size of the sacrifice. And so, 
It's a different sacrifice depending on your, your giving. So give proportionately. Here's the next one. Give sacrificially. You might feel like these are sort of ramping up higher and higher. Well, I just want to give you a snapshot of what your life is going to look like as you grow in excelling in the grace of giving. So some of these you might say, oh, wow, that's a long ways ahead of me now. I'm okay with that. At least you should know what's coming. Give sacrificially. When you give in a way that affects you, it alters your lifestyle, that's giving sacrificially. So you're saying, I'm going without to give this gift. And that's what the Macedonians had done. But that's also what the poor widow that Jesus pointed out should do. By the way, Jesus didn't stop her and say, wait, you can't give. Giving is the privilege of the poor. In 2008, I sat around, I sat around a fire in a circle with a bunch of Canadians who had gone to Burkina Faso. And then around us sat a village of people. They were one of the poorest villages we've been to. You could tell how poor they were by, this, by the roofs. Um, some would have corrugated metal roofs on their, I guess you call it houses, but they'd be a one-room hut, basically. And those were the wealthier ones. But as you drove farther and farther down the road, you got to where the roofing was just branches. They would just put branches on the top of their mud walls. So mud and branches. So I'm in a village of mud walls and branches. I'm sitting around a fire, and I'm eating chicken and rice that the villagers have made for us. And they're sitting around us in a big circle, and none of them are eating. If there's ever a moment in my life where I would, I would have wanted to just say, hold it, stop. This shouldn't even be happening. We're rich Canadians. We've come to Africa, and you are some of the poorest of the world, and you are feeding us. Like, if there's any moment, I would say, no. No, this shouldn't happen. This isn't right. I refuse to eat this food. But you know what? It doesn't matter what level you live at in life. Generosity is your privilege. It's a privilege that God wants you to walk in. And here they were walking in it. And I was going, I'm going to eat this rice with gratitude. <laughs> I'm going to eat this chicken and be glad. And I'm going to thank them and, and marvel at what happened today. I saw generosity, sacrificial generosity. Give in response to the Holy Spirit. Almost done. This is where offerings come in, tithings and offerings. Offering is like just something extra, right? And my suspicion is that God wants to uh, release a river of resources into the kingdom of God through his people. But it's going to require some people listening for what God wants them to give. Sometimes God will prompt you to give something and you don't even have that money or that, those resources yet. I mean, write it down. Be ready. Maybe God will provide that opportunity yet down the road for you. So give in response to the Holy Spirit's promptings. And give joyfully. I mean, it's about the heart behind the gift. The cheerful giver, the joyful giver, the satisfied, delighted, and grateful in God giver. Give cheerfully and freely. Because God loves a cheerful giver. And if you allow him, he'll make you into one. He'll make you into even more of a cheerful giver. God will walk you through every stage of growth and giving to accomplish that in your life. I love that. If God says he loves cheerful givers, then that's a promise for us. I mean, it's sort of like a thing to be, it's, it's a squad goal, right? It's something to be, become. But God, when he says this is my desire, that means he will help you become it. You can be confident that he'll lead you and he'll guide you. Let me read you this last story and then we'll, and then we'll pray. This is Randy Alcorn. He writes, The streets of Cairo were hot and dusty. Pat and Raquel Thurman took us down an alleyway. We drove past Arabic signs to a gate that opened to a plot of overgrown grass. It was a graveyard for American missionaries. As my family and I followed, Pat pointed to a sun-scorched tombstone that read, William Borden, 1887 to 1913. Borden, a Yale graduate and heir to great wealth, rejected a life of ease in order to bring the gospel to Muslims. Refusing even to buy himself a car, Borden gave away hundreds of thousands of dollars to missions. After only four months of zealous ministry in Egypt, he contracted spinal meningitis and died at the age of 25. I dusted off the epitaph on Borden's grave 
After describing his love and sacrifices for the kingdom of God and for the Muslim people, the inscription ended with a phrase I've never forgotten. Apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. The Thurmans took us straight from Borden's grave to the Egyptian National Museum. The King Tut exhibit was, exhibit was mind-boggling. Tutankhamun, the boy king, was only 17 when he died. He was buried with solid gold chariots and thousands of golden artifacts. His gold coffin was found within gold tombs, within gold tombs, within gold tombs. The burial site was filled with tons of gold. The Egyptians believed in an afterlife, one where they could take earthly treasures. But all the treasures intended for King Tut's eternal enjoyment stayed right where they were until Howard Carter discovered the burial chamber in 1922. They hadn't been touched for more than 3,000 years. I was struck by the contrast between these two graves. Borden's was obscure, dusty, and hidden off the back alley of a street littered with garbage. And Tutankhamun's tomb glittered with an unimaginable wealth. It's two extremes, isn't it? Somebody wanted to take their wealth with them. And someone who purposed in themselves to invest their, their wealth in the kingdom and give it all away. And I wonder today, whereas we as believers stand between those two extremes, between the life of King Tut and the life of William Borden, maybe I should make a better contrast between the life of King Tut and the life of our Lord Jesus Christ, who for our sake became poor so we might be rich. Would you stand with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you that you've made us rich. We don't even fully understand all that that means. But you're, you're going to keep revealing facets of that in our lives. And we thank you that as we look into your word, as we, as we uh, listen to what you've, you've uh, um, kept for us so that we would understand you, that we can see more and more of what we have in you. Lord, we're your heirs. We're co-heirs with Jesus. We stand to inherit so much. And so since we've been made already rich, Lord, help us to live in great generosity. Lord, I thank you that you are so generous with us. Thank you for all that you've given us. Thank you through your death and through your sacrifice, uh, you've given us eternal life in you. So Lord, I pray that we start living. You give us ways to practically walk out generosity. I pray that we'd be able to keep drawing on your example and also on what you've done for us. And Lord, we do want to live a life that doesn't make sense unless it's tied to the gospel. It doesn't make sense except for Jesus Christ. It isn't the average. It isn't the normal. It's completely different. So Lord, would you show us small ways and large ways to do that in our lives? Show us ways in which we can uh, be small mirrors of the glory of who you are and show that to the world. We ask that in your name.